the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to the Shaker Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we jump into today's discussion, Consider tossing us a buck a month at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Also, friendly shout out to Jeannie Jen for the Fear is the Mind Killer review on iTunes. We always appreciate reviews that are, uh, that are interesting and that coincide with our interests. Obviously, this one being a Dune reference for Cooper over here. Leave us a review maybe for next week. Whoever leaves a review saying explain to lose to me right now can get a shout out. But today, Cooper and I are, we are discussing Marx's dissertation on the Democritian and Epicurean differences in the philosophy of nature. And Coop, you have pointed out, and, and we kind of discussed this a little bit with Ray Brazier when we had him on last month about uh, the dissertation, the, I believe it's in the foreword, where he kind of makes this intimation about Prometheus being like the martyr of philosophy. I think he says it's something like this, right? Yeah. Marx quotes the Aeschylus. Yeah. Yeah. Marx quotes Aeschylus, what Prometheus bound, I believe is how it's generally translated. And he quotes, he has several quotes, what in simple words, I hate the pack of gods. And he finds in the quote, its own confession, its own aphorism against all heavenly and earthly gods who do not acknowledge human self-consciousness as the highest divinity. And then there's one more quote of Aeschylus, I believe, Prometheus saying to Hermes, right, the messenger of the gods, the little lackey of the gods, be sure of this, I would not change my state of evil fortune for your servitude. Better to be the servant of this rock than to be faithful boy to Father Zeus. And he ends by saying Prometheus is the most eminent saint and martyr in the philosophical calendar, which again, as we said, Ray Brazier kind of mentions Prometheus and obviously has his own kind of brand of philosophical inquiry that is roughly kind of termed under Prometheanism and Niall Unbound, I assume is like a wink and a nod to, um, to this notion of Prometheus bound by Aeschylus and what is Prometheus Unbound Shelley? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just this is it's like a Jeopardy question, you know, romantic poets for 400, Alex. But also the other Shelley subtitled Frankenstein, the, the modern Prometheus, right? So um, that's also kind of an interesting coincidence. You have something here about the Prometheus quote perhaps being a rallying cry for materialism. What were you thinking of when you <laughs> wrote that down? Or was that just kind of a uh, an intuition that, that came to you? Yeah, I guess it was a sort of intuition 
perhaps just kind of reading in between the lines of this Promethean sort of proclamation. And I guess, you know, it would probably go towards something like the myth of the given or something like that, right? Like the world is made in a sense. Right. And so that distinction probably is, I think, what I was trying to do. But maybe I was even trying to say that the dissertation itself is this sort of rallying cry for materialism. Yeah, I like that. You know, if we are kind of forced sort of before going into a broad discussion of Marx's interest in this, what he calls, like, if we take a microscope, we can kind of see that there are these divergences that Epicurus doesn't just inherit from Democritus and Leucippus, the atomistic theory wholesale, but there are these, there is, there are literally these, these little Kleinemans, these little swerves that Epicurus, uh, he himself is the one that comes up with the Kleinman and the swerve. That's not really found in Democritus and Lucas. But uh, if there is an interest in the differences between these two systems in the evolution of the atomistic theory, it is, I think it makes sense to see in it this interest in materialism. If you consider the other pre-Socratics, they are known as the physiologists, which means they try to find a primordial principle, a primordial element of phusis, of nature, that can sort of rationally explain all of its configurations and transformations, whereas... Like a yeah, transcendental okay. signifier type. Something like that, yeah. Like, like Or God, I mean, God, it's just, like it's first, just, first cause, mm-hmm. prime mover, yeah, that kind of shit. Eschaton, I guess, I don't know. Not eschaton, yeah. demiurge, I guess, is what I was thinking of. Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, the Thales and Heraclitus and, uh, you know, it's water, it's fire, or even with, um, I believe it's Anaximander that it's a Pyron, right? Which is just a the unlimited. Yeah. Well, Epicurus, uh, uh, well, maybe it's different spelling. No, it's the same spelling, a Pyron. And so what's nice about them, even though we are still kind of in a, in a sort of idealism, in a sort of... I don't even know that's a good word for it. It's still, we're still not in a materialism proper, but there is this move. What's good about the physiologists is that we've moved from explanation by means of religion or myth, which myth has this kind of role of explaining why things are the way they are with these interesting, creative kind of belief systems. And these, there's always an explanatory kernel in them. This is a move from that type of discourse to a sort of properly scientific, in the broadest sense, type of explanation. Right. Where now we're not resorting to myth. We are actually trying to investigate the causes of things without this, uh, we could say, like superstitious superstructure, right? You know, we're, there is a means to explain things in general and and things as a whole with a kind of with a kind of rationalism with a kind of reason that isn't uh founded in in anything else but these like base principles this is kind of thought of as like you know the the sort of greek miracle it's called sometimes put that in big scare quotes right this birth of western philosophy and epicurus is well we can go into a lot of it, but I find Epicurus interesting because he's he's writing in the wake of Plato and Aristotle's deaths, right? I mean, Plato and Aristotle being sort of this change from the the sort of 
the physiologist, the physiological, the the sort of all-encompassing interpretation of nature by a by a primordial principle, right. an element yeah. to this kind of moral philosophy, but also this kind of uh, you know rationalism and uh, the archetypes, etc. So Epicurus is is indicative of this kind of interesting shift, I think, in philosophy, and that's part of what we're going to talk about today with Marx's dissertation. It's interesting, I think, to look at this in terms of, I guess, the way that at this time, not Marx's time per se, more so Epicurus's time would be like the natural sciences and the and philosophy are still sort of, if not the same discourse, they are, they haven't fully divested from one another entirely, right? Like perhaps, yeah, perhaps the scientific yeah. discourse is beginning to bud on the body of philosophy. Let's yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that uh, before it diverges know. at some point. I don't know what that distinction would be, but I just yeah, think that's it, kind of interesting in the context of this myth of the given type thing and the way that the project of philosophy itself has been maintained over by you know countless individuals over time. I mean, that's a very incredible phenomenon of itself, right? This discourse is something that spans untold, you know, people's timescales, et cetera, right? Which I think is actually kind of interesting in the sense of the way that they discuss time towards the end, or Marx discusses time relative to this towards the end of the dissertation. But I don't want to get necessarily into that. But it's an important point. And it's good to think about the sort of. I mean, that even goes to back to Brazier, what he talked about as far as like the sort of diachronic, synchronic movement of philosophy, right? It's change within philosophy is a slow moving product. You know what I mean? Deleuze and Guattari saying, what is philosophy that human history and the history of philosophy don't have the same rhythm? They're sort of out of sync. It's hard to say whether one is anticipating the other or if they just have a totally different scale, as you're saying. And I do think it's interesting that, you know, with Plato, philosophy does take on, it becomes more of a proper noun, you know, this love of wisdom with Socrates always sort of loving wisdom, but not necessarily having it, right? It's always this, this kind of approach or this, this kind of desire like a becoming, for it. Becoming knowledge, I don't know. Yeah, or, be, or becoming, becoming wise, yeah, that's, that's kind of... With Aristotle, though, you kind of see a, a different tendency where Aristotle represents, still represents one of these great encyclopedic minds, really trying to collect and aggregate and organize all the fields of knowledge yeah. available at the time. So you do see kind of two competing tendencies in a yeah. certain sense. With it's like a with rationality, these- a rationality, a scientism, empiricity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. I'm glad you reminded me of empiricism because I think that's that's a big buzzword for this discussion too. So with with Democritus, we have a type of empirical mindset, and this is kind of how Marx begins to differentiate them. If Democritus is and Leucippus, who who isn't a part of this, but they're basically thought of as having very similar views. If Leucippus spawned atomism, and Democritus kind of is most popularly associated with the conception of atomism, right, with um, atoms falling in the void, etc., the sort of the everything 
in all matter, uh, all physical nature itself is composed of these indivisible atoms that we we can't see, right? Because our senses are not on that magnitude, they're not on that scale. But if he's associated with the birth of it, Epicurus is also known for being an atomism. But but as Marx tries to say, it's not so simple, right? They, there is this difference in this philosophy of nature, right? This philosophy of atomistic phusis. And I think that one of the first things that comes clear is how Democritus is a man of science. He is a man of knowledge. He is a he, he knows geometry. He even if the works haven't survived, is known to have written widely on many different scientific subjects. He sort of travels the world trying to accumulate knowledge from the Egyptians and the Indian gymnosophists and blah, blah, blah. Like he's, he's That's Democritus, in, right? That's not Epicurus. Yeah, Democritus. Yeah, Democritus is the one who's searching for, he has this thirst for knowledge. And what I think is interesting about Epicurus, besides visiting some friends in Asia Minor, for the most part, he is sedentary, right? He does, he's not well-traveled. Tends to his garden. Uh, he tends to his garden. He has a small group of friends. He, in fact, after trying to teach in Athens, is driven out of the, the city only to come back like a decade later and, and then starts to sort of lecture in private circles, these, these circles of friends, rather than founding a school like Plato or Aristotle or teaching openly like Democritus. And there are reasons for this, which we can come back to, but it's just interesting to think that, um, you know, Epicurus is only concerned in knowledge insofar as it can dispel our superstitions and our fears, which cause us to act in a way as to not accord with what we more generally think of as an ethics or a sort of a moral principle, a moral compass. And so for Epicurus, if philosophy is merely about accumulating knowledge, or if even science itself is just about accumulating knowledge, then in fact, it's, it's pointless. It should, it should be its first primary goal should be to help us lead good lives and to help us to attain happiness. That's completely different from Democritus. So that's like a first little like snapshot of the man of science versus the myth breaker, if you will, like the the, the man of living within having enough knowledge of nature so as not to be afraid of death, not to be afraid of the gods who are not concerned with us. They have their own happiness. They're completely happy with and self-contented. They're not bothering us, right? They're not going to punish us. You know, Epicurus is definitely, um, we would call it loosely like a practical ethics, but it's kind of based on a, on a theoretical physics in a certain way. It's interesting in that sense. Is it like a archaic version of like Deleuze's transcendental? It's a type of empiricism that he's doing, right? Kind of. Not perhaps, you know, I don't know. Empiricism in a gestational form, I suppose. Yeah, because for Democritus, in a certain sense, and we talked about this before the show, Democritus is very skeptical about our sense impressions. He thinks of them in such a way that appearance is faulty, and we need this kind of rationalist science to help us to acquire knowledge, 
Whereas for Epicurus, our sense impressions are, are what we have and what we have to start with. And they are what we have to trust. So there is this interesting distrust in sensuality and this kind of privileging of a proto-rationalism on Democritus' side, Epicurus fully trusting in the senses and wanting to develop not only a sort of an ethics, but also kind of like a moral psychology of pleasure and pain and happiness based on our sense impressions. A type, a type of very ancient, or not ancient, but archaic psychoanalysis almost. There is a sense in which there are certain things in Epicurus's extant little aphorisms and maxims that sound like psychoanalysis. When he says, you know, before we try to act to fulfill a desire, we should ask ourselves what, you know, what will happen if I achieve this desire and what will happen if, if I don't? And I think this it comes down to also what I was telling you a little bit before, where Epicurus distinguishes three types of desires, the natural and the necessary, which is food, drink, shelter, warmth. That's the natural and the necessary that the, if we can kind of circumscribe our desires mostly to that sphere, we'll be pretty happy in general. But then there's the natural and the unnecessary, which is basically sexual desire, which you know is not something we can live without, even if it may be kind of a part of our instinctual life. And then there's the unnatural and the unnecessary, which boils down for the most part for him to the accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of power and the accumulation of fame, which is kind of associated. But, you know, for Epicurus, these are neither natural nor necessary. And when our desires really start to dip into that sphere or privilege it, when those become dominant, that's when we live a life full of not only confusion, but of basically he calls it, it it's completely against the state of ataraxia that he tries to reach. And ataraxia for him is this kind of state of calmness, freedom from mental disturbance, but also kind of physical. Yeah, it's like vibes. It's like vibing. Yeah, and Nietzsche sees in this too that one of the merits of Epicurus's kind of moral practical philosophy, which is that, you know, there are two types of pleasures. One is the kinetic pleasure from motion, which again, sex, sexual desire being one of the key ingredients of that. But the other, there is this kind of static pleasure, which we can't always fulfill because we do have to sort of, you know, fulfill, we have to sort of put our bodies in motion to eat and to, to drink and whatnot. But for the most part, you know, there is connected with those simple bodily pleasures, a state of mind of equanimity or what he calls ataraxia, this, this kind of stillness that we can achieve with sort of mental clarity, which is free from fear and free from the superstition of death and the afterlife being full of misery and punishment and all of these things. All these things that Epicurus thinks are the primary cause of of the biggest pains and the biggest distress and the biggest anxieties in life. And the Christians, of course, take issue with Epicurus and sort of quash the cult of Epicurus. You know, he, uh, the cult of Epicurus, you know, call it the, the Epicureans, because he was a very charismatic and, and sort of influential guy, even if he didn't start his school himself, there were many followers of his during and after his life. His little call it a cult, his little gathering uh, extends three centuries before Christ's birth and three centuries after it. So it did take 
more or less for Rome under, um, was it Justinian? I'll have to check to adopt Christianity as the state religion of Rome right before its downfall. Constantinople later. or Constantine rather. Yeah. Constantine. Thank you. It was only until Rome adopted it as the official state religion that you see the downfall of the Epicureans or at least the dissolution of them. And the Epicureans actually show up in uh, Acts, right? I think even Marx quotes it, or he maybe not quotes it, but he has a footnote on it where Paul is um, kind of trying to convince the Epicureans about this discourse that wouldn't be kind of textual hermeneutics on the on the traditional Judaic side and wouldn't be sort of the rational argumentative discourse of the Greeks, but would be um, this other discourse, this discourse of faith, which obviously wouldn't go by argument or textual exposition. And this is something that they kind of want to hear more about because it's obviously intriguing and it's this new type of discourse. Anyway. Just briefly, while I'm thinking about this, you know, one of the inspirations for this topic, Marx's dissertation, is that we'll be speaking with Thomas Nail next week, and one of the books that he's written is Marx in Motion. And so, you know, you just mentioned you mentioned motion earlier, so I just wanted to throw that out there. That's sort of the genesis of why we're having this conversation, and in the hopes that this will sort of enrich our ability to dig into that text. And so, just to yeah, keep that in mind for those that are kind of following along with the episodes and and engaging with these thinkers. That this is kind of our, I guess, our our reasoning behind taking a look at the dissertation. Yeah, in addition it, to the, you know, I just had some interest in in Epicurus. I forget. I feel like in high school I had taken one of these. You know, it, it was almost like the political compass test or something like that, and I get Epicurean. Okay. At one point, and so I was always kind of had a appreciation of that i guess or like that always kind of stuck with me and i feel like even epicurus kind of has a little bit of almost kind of a sterner vibe in some senses yeah but maybe yeah. not always but in some cases kind of a, of a reverse but i don't know it's kind of interesting i think that it's it's interesting that you got this the sort of epicurean personality it is it is this this thing where you know Epicurus is not providing a philosophy for the state that is more related to the Platonists and specifically the Stoics. The Stoics are kind of famous for this theory of the cosmos within which we have to become synchronized. So it is this cosmopolitan type of philosophy that was very intriguing to some of the, the emperors that were founding empires in Alexander's wake. And so they ingratiate, I don't want to say the Stoics ingratiated themselves as much as the emperors enticed them and gave them stipends and and kind of endorsed their type of philosophy because it is this philosophy of of a kind of world order. Are they and, are the Stoics also doing a type of any type of physics, or do they they're sort of after this? kind of, type the, the, of discussion no, no, that they are in a certain they and, and, and they're very much in opposition to Epicurus, which is interesting to me because in the mm. in the in the opening forward and in the epigraph of Marx's dissertation, Marx is like, okay, here's my little dissertation on the difference between Democritus and Epicurus. At a later date, I'm gonna uh talk about the Cynics and the Stoics and the Epicureans and and sort of 
work out more broadly their differences. And then in the epigraph, he's like, oh, due to philosophical and political interests, I'm no longer, that's no longer going to happen. Like he basically kind of admits like, yeah, I've moved on to bigger and better things. In a certain sense, the difference between the Stoics and the Epicureans are even greater, or at least more apparent than the differences between Democritus and, and Epicurus. But the Stoics did conceive of a kind of the easiest way to put it, and this is kind of how Simon Don puts it, among other things, but just in terms of their physical theories, which is what you asked about. The Stoics conceive the individual for the Stoics is the cosmos, right? Is the, the monad. Well, it's I don't know if it would itself be a be a monad in Leibniz in Leibniz's sense, but the cosmos, the sort of world totality and the world soul, the seminal fire that, from which all things originate. So that's um, not a Spinoza's type of a point, or in am a I just certain, fucking in, them in, up? <laughs> in, the modern, in the modern discourse, in the early modern discourse, the difference between Stoicism, Stoics, and Epicureans on the basis of substance, or on the basis of of the individual, you could have Spinoza and Leibniz, because Spinoza would be like the Stoics, where substance, God, or nature would be cosmos would. In a certain sense, the individual is God or nature. Right. And right? everything else is, you know, is sort of a constituent. Yeah. Everything is a motive expression of the one right. substance or whatever. All right. And three little. So, so described. the individual is on the highest magnitude. It's what Lucretius calls the sum of all sums. For Lucretius and the Epicureans, the individual is the atom. That's as the far singularity. as. Right, that's as far as the creative nothing. So that's kind of the st- the sterner kind of jive I was kind of trying, to, or maybe I'm just smashing two things against one another. Well, the if the void were somehow thought of as creative, then we could say that because for Epicurus, all you have is the void and atoms. That's what you have on the sort of basic level. Right. So what Simon Don tries to do, not only in opposing the Stoics and the Epicureans, but in opposing Spinoza and Leibniz is that on one end, the individual is too large. Obviously, it's too great. On the other hand, it's too small. And there is an intermediate order of magnitude that we have to situate the individual. And specifically, it's within unique systems of information. But we're not talking about that today. I just <laughs> think it's I, I just think it's interesting to put these things in context. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The reason I even brought up or asked if the Stoics were involved within physics was just to like kind of make the point towards, I guess, the the despot trying to capture the technical machine or the scientific machine. Yeah. The, you know what I mean? And the despot trying to found... And, and the way that you were kind shot. of... Like the yeah. way that the kings or those trying to found empires were trying to curry favor with Stoics yeah. as a sort of exactly. way of capturing this... Yeah, that that machine, I suppose. And as I mentioned earlier, Epicurus is driven out of Athens by a tyrant for teaching in public. So this is why he teaches privately to the society of friends that he gathers, which include women and slaves, whereas the Stoic is kind of teaching this philosophy of, of the cosmopolitan man that can, that can move from state to state and sort of become syntonic, become attuned with the order within he finds himself. So I think that that's why the Stoics are very much a, a kind of state philosophy, if for accidental reasons or incidental reasons, 
whereas the Epicureans are much more a kind of semi-nomadic band. And, you know, it's, I think that another thing that's, that's interesting here is you're asking about the physics of the Stoics and the Epicureans for the physics of Stoicism is interesting as the cosmos is the seminal fire is this igneous fire, this creative fire from which all things emanate. And so in that sense, it's kind of a creative nothing, except it's a creative all. And so the energy that individual or not individual, the energy that entities within the cosmic individual, all that energy comes from the cosmos. Whereas if you see in in this discussion that Marx goes through, walks through very methodically, with Epicurus, you have the atoms in the void. And the void does, is kind of this indifferent milieu. It's not giving energy to the atoms. The atoms themselves have their own declination due to their own weight. And the swerve, the Kleinemann, that causes them not to fall merely parallel, but to begin just minutely, infinitesimally to swerve off course in this straight line fall is what causes them to interact and redound and and rebound off one another and form these composites. So the swerve is not a part of the void. The swerve is actually inherent to the atoms. So that's a big difference in the physics that the cosmos has is giving energy to as a milieu. It is this energized dynamic milieu. Whereas in the void with Epicureans, it's not. There is the swerve is is self-inherent to the atoms. They have their own inherent kind of kinetic potential again just to flag that this is kind of i think where you know we're going to build off of this and looking at nail's book on marks in motion in that book at least in the introduction he's talking a bit about the early marks epicurus etc it's interesting to think about what is the animating principle for these two big philosophies at the time, these two Hellenic philosophies that were kind of competing and, and opposed in so many ways. And it is this notion that the atom, which we said is like the Leibnizian monad, has its own dynamism, its own, Simon Dome calls the swerve, a kind of a sort of minimal control energy, right, that is added to the sort of potentially infinite potential energy of, of the fall, of the free fall. Hmm. So it's kind of interesting to think about the different dynamics of, of, the, yeah. of, the, of the two systems. It's interesting whenever you start getting further into this, the physics and when they're talking about points and so forth mm -hmm. and like time and points relative to that because of, I guess, just considering this in terms of like a, a sort of motion that has to involve the time, right? Because I think outside of time, nothing is moving. It's only within time, which is like, what did he call it? Like it's an embodied being or something? That's not what he says, but... Yeah, time, time becomes sort of... Time the, is uh, abstract form of sensation. Human sensuousness is therefore embodied time, the existing reflection of the sensuous world in itself. That's the quote. Yeah. And... Uh... It's also what's interesting too is that time is uh, is the active form of concrete nature, while space is its passive form. Because as we were just saying, the void is this passive 
medium, yeah, right. this passive yeah. value. And one of the interesting things that we can extrapolate from this too is the fact that in a certain way, Epicurus, and this is kind of hotly debated in, in like, you know, Hellenic studies, uh, Epicurus is trying to derive or to base, it's either trying to derive a free will or indeterminism from the swerve, from the Kleinemann, or use the fact of free will and indeterminism as the necessity of the Kleinemann, of the swerve. Because if the swerve is not a part of the void, but inherit to the atom, that is, to a certain extent, this first glimpse and principle of the reality of indeterminism, right? As against a kind of necessity because right yeah 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 so this is almost getting towards the quantum right quantum indeterminacy heisenberg uncertainty principle things like this i mean that it it really was quantum entanglement as well yeah it really wasn't until heisenberg certainty principle that because for a long time the kleinemann and the conjoined interest in indeterminism or free will for a long time the kleinemann was laughed at not only by Cicero, he was one of the first to really scathingly <laughs> remark. Yeah, Cicero on was a hater. And, and, and Plutarch, but for centuries, it was kind of looked down upon. And so it's with Heisenberg's, what, 27, the uncertainty principle that we can't d- establish the sort of speed and trajectory of a, or speed and, and velocity and uh, location, right, of, a, right. of an electron. Yeah, we can only measure one at a time. Yeah, so... So there is something there is something similar to this, at least extrapolating analogically. I guess the declination, the swerving is like the motion of the sine wave of the particle wave itself. Right. And it's interesting, too, because light travels as a wave and as a particle. You're talking about photons. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Photons in particular kind of. Yes. Sort of link. Right. Because. Yes. It's either the photon is a particle or it's a wave. It's not. Both, although I guess with the double slit, you can aver- observe the effects or something. Well, of- it is both particle and wave. It's it's merely about our being able to us being able to perceive our yeah our logic of sense. Yeah, there's actually this beautiful line. Now you maybe think of it. There's this wonderful line in Lucretius where he talks about sunlight coming through a barn, and we open the door. And we adjust our eyes, right? And in the flickering through, like the little kind of slit, we see this cloud of dust, almost like this Brownian motion. And we see the, the sort of randomness, the chance encounters of the of the dust particles bouncing off each other and, and forming, you know, forming these little tiny aggregates and, and composites. And he kind of uses this as, as a, a very beautiful metaphorical but beautiful um illustration of the reality of the Kleinman. right we can kind of literally see it on a larger scale obviously attuned to our senses of these dust particles that and their and their little their little motion um and their you know we i always think of that that when i try to think about this in a way that isn't merely abstract right I think here too we can see that, you know, with with another big difference between the Stoics and 
Epicurus and also between Democritus and Epicurus is the fact that the Stoics with cosmos and this world order and empire uh, like uh, philosophy, they are thinking about necessity, about fate as, as this order with which we have to become attuned, right? In uh, order, to, we, have right. To, we have to sort of- Hard determinism. Yeah, there is a sense in which this is why Cicero attacks Epicurus because he has much more of a stoic leaning. He's got a bias. And he even talks about, he uses this beautiful phrase about fate as destiny, as the uncoiling of a capstan when sailors set out to sea, right? Like everything is already contained in the coil, all the different accidents, it was already there. And it's only when it unfolds, when our lives unfold, that we can see all the sort of inherent necessary necessary eventualities. Now for Epicurus, this is something that he fights against very, very much so. He says one of his most famous lines is, better to believe in the legends of the gods than to be slave to the fate of the natural philosophers. He's talking about the Stoics particularly, but Democritus too, to a certain extent, because Democritus isn't the one who introduces this interest in free will or in determinism. I think that that's what's kind of, again, interesting to to see in making the Kleinemann not something outside that happens to the atoms, but something inherent to the atom. Right, yeah, something imminent to its own being. You could also say, though, that this is also due to a to the status of ancient physics, that for all of its creativity, for all of its advancements that Epicurus puts forward, even in the face of such doubt, the one thing that is lacking in the notion of atoms and void is a uh, field of forces, like a gra- like gravitational. Like right. we understand gravity to be um, to have to do with weight, attraction so, between falling bodies. Right, but really, so, I guess it gets relative with you know that's an interesting question. I guess in terms of space, right? Because Einstein that says what mass does is warp the fabric of space-time itself. So weight, in a sense, like in a very loose sense, weight in terms of dent, what mass, weight and mass are not exactly the same thing, I guess, but... No, they're not. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So to a certain but extent... mass, yeah, because size and weight have, I think, a correlation, whereas mass and size don't necessarily have a correlation in terms of uh, in terms of linear, like graphing it linearly. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, like a black hole, for instance, is immense, but it takes up a very, the singularity is like immense, but it's infinitely. Infinitely small. dense. It's right? infinitely, yeah. yeah, infinitely dense is the better way to articulate that. But it is interesting that Epicurus is able to predict what with like Galileo sort of bodies falling in a, in a void are, yeah. are more or less falling at equal speeds there's pros and cons obviously to uh but for the most part there's a lot of interesting physical predictions one could say with epicurus and it's just that the theory of force fields is a much more modern attainment anyway this is all to kind of generally sketch the status of epicurean philosophy in broad strokes as opposed to its milieu and and what it's reacting to because in a certain sense it is reacting to you know platonism to well to platonism and aristotelianism but also 
but definitely also Stoicism and, and Democritus. And Epicurus is, is not merely adopting wholesale democracy, right. either his theoretical perspective on knowledge and knowledge accumulation as being mm. a sort of end in itself. And, you know, and this notion of free will and determinism. In fact, there was something I just wanted to say before we move on, where I mentioned this earlier, but I just want to make sure we get it. Epicurus says, vain is the word of a philosopher by whom no human suffering is cured. For just as medicine is of no use if it fails to banish the diseases of the body, so philosophy is of no use if it fails to banish the suffering of the mind. And I think that that's where his, another difference from Democritus, and it's found in his kind of moral teaching, and Epicurus's moral teaching, where it's like, look, knowledge accumulation is no good if it doesn't help us lead healthier lives. Right. Whereas and, capitalism will hijack this, right? Ha well, ha capitalism hijacks the scientific and technical machines. Mm -hmm. And then it takes away our ability to, it displaces pleasure that Epicurus is, Epicurus rather is talking about and puts it in this sort of Democritian way of like, it's like a Manichaean, right? Like a Manichaean type worldview. It's like the hard determinism, right? Yeah, I mean, it's you're right to talk about capitalism sort of creating these new. We talked about it last week as as these flows of bullshit. I mean, hold me tight and spit on me, right? That's different than, I mean, that's opposed to Epicurus and because that doesn't really, you know what I mean? Like it's like displacing desire from pleasure, I guess, or from physical pleasure, or I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's increasing. What he would say is it's increasing our desires the unnatural and unnecessary desires and making them seem as though they are yeah it's creating uh, lack they are everywhere needs. right it's yeah, creating yeah. lack everywhere yeah like they say at uh an anti-oedipus a manufactured yeah. lack a produced lack it's more more void for your for your dollar <laughs> yeah nice. there's also this great image that just to speak about because we we said earlier and marx works through this that there's an infinite number of atoms. There's an infinite amount of void. A pyron actually means less infinite, but unlimited. But it's interesting that Lucretius tries to demonstrate this with a very interesting analogy. He's like, okay, let's say the universe were limited and we stood at the edge of the universe and threw a spear, sort of trying to throw it outside of the universe. Either it would be stopped and repelled, which means there would be matter there. That would stop it, it right? or it would sort of pass through this limit and show that there's space there. So it's hmm. this kind of interesting, crude, but interesting visualization. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's uh, almost goes to that kind of hard limit and relative limit type dialectic. Mm -hmm. I think this next passage is one that's ripen for us to discuss because this gets a little bit into time. Composition is the merely passive form of concrete nature, time its active form. If I consider composition in terms of its being, then the atoms exist beyond it, in the void, in the imagination. If I consider the atom in terms of its concept, then composition either does not exist at all or exists only in the subjective imagination. For composition is a relationship in which the atoms, independent, self-enclosed, as it were, uninterested in one another, have likewise no relationship to one another. Time, in contrast, the change of the finite to the extent that change is posited as change, 
is just as much the real form which separates appearance from essence and posits it as appearance while leading it back to essence. Composition expresses merely the materiality of the atoms as well as the nature emerging from them. Time, in contrast, is in the world of appearance what the concept of the atom is in the world of essence, namely the abstraction, destruction, and reduction of all determined being into being for itself. Now that is a banger. Yeah, you know, there's, if all we have are atoms and the void, the reason for this is that, as we have kind of said, atom itself kind of means that which cannot be cut, but but it's what's indivisible. And there are an infinite number of atoms, infinite amount of void, but they also don't come into being or pass away. This is kind of the interesting thing. They are not subject to dissolution itself. What is subject to dissolution is the composites formed by the aggregation of matter and their properties uh, by the aggregation of atoms. Yes. And the properties that emerge from that aggregation. Yes. Yeah. And the images they give off. Right. Which is really interesting. Right. Because like in a sense, yes, even if you're going physics, I mean, this is not exactly the same thing because it applies more to energy, but what is the conservation of matter? Law of conservation of energy would say energy is ne- neither created nor destroyed. And if all matter is energy slowed down to a vibration, then that would be true. Yes. So Epicurus is one of the things to note that, you know, atoms themselves are not subject to, in themselves are not subject to change, but they can enter into combinations in the sort of minimal yeah, sort. Yeah, that's their- a really, I didn't even appreciate in my reading, how much of a mind fuck that concept is, mm-hmm. but it's quite, yeah, that's quite a mind fuck to wrap your head around. That line you read for composition is a relationship in which, in which the atoms independent self-enclosed as it were uninterested in one another have likewise no relationship to one another, but then time you introduce time into that. And then this is where we get to the real form. This is where we get to sort of concrete interaction and the sort of, opens them up to have these interactions in a certain sense and, and to form composites. But the composites themselves are subject to, to becoming or subject the assemblages, to the yeah, dissolution. The, assembl- the kind of molecular yeah. assemblages of atoms are subject to those, to difference. Yeah. Not subject- the atoms themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's, that's an interesting, that's sort of an interesting thing, which is why what this is one of them. Um, so but then yeah. atoms themselves are alienated from their concept, right? Like I start to lose. Well, that's <laughs> that's insofar as they have qualities, I think, right? And that's insofar as they are, insofar as the infinity of atoms implies not necessarily an, an infinity of unique atoms, but at least a sort of indefinite number of different atoms, which would have different. It's not that there are two different types of atoms it's that there are different determinations of one and the same form of atom this this is part of what marx is doing he's because he is kind of working through some of this stuff he is getting from hegel's reading of Epicurus, which we left out because it just get a little bit too bogged down (laughs) we're trying to do a hegel light version but (laughs) but yeah insofar as the atom is abstract individuality for marx 
at the same time and, and contradictorily, not necessarily in a bad sense, because for Marx, what's interesting about Epicurus is that he, he tarries with the contradictions and wants to right. think through yeah. them and not right. just to wave them away. Yeah. You know, the fact that atoms are abstract and individuality and yet at the same time cannot be said to not have certain qualities, right? As we know from like our modern Mendeleev elementary table, right? We, we know that there are different atoms and they have atomic they, weight, right? Yeah. I mean, that are differentiated on their atomic weight, atomic weight, atomic mass, I guess, are actually two different things, right? It's well, interesting though, too, but the, what's cool, kind of interesting is that there are, I guess, in terms of the composition or the properties of the atoms, right? Some atoms are heavier, right? Yeah. Like the mass is a thing. Like, like a vigorous predicted. Right. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at the way that a star forms or the earth or like, I mean, this is literally how elements are formed within the heart of a star, right? It's like the heaviest elements are like lead or is lead. And that's what is at the base of the star iron. Like all of the heavier elements are sort of, it's a gradient from the center of the, whatever the star or the planet right the earth falls in this too right it's a molten iron core within the heart of the earth and a gradient from dense to light right the crust is the lighter material like silica etc mm -hmm. uh, carbon right these are lighter elements than something like lead iron etc or you know uranium right like that kind of shit that's like super packed with stuff with energy i suppose with the kinetics that he gets into which is another interesting little diversion but i won't go down that it's good it's it's uh you know but it is this interesting notion that that while the atoms are sort of indifferent to one another they still maintain through the their own self-contained swerve and through the nest the consequential incidents of atoms upon one another like we said with the dust particles aggregating they form these compositions and in that sense it's the compositions that are mortal, so to speak, and that gener that come to be and pass away, not yeah. the atoms themselves. Right. That's so and, weird, right? Like that's such a bizarre. But what's interesting is Lucretius gives uses this as an example of why we shouldn't fear death, because he says the atoms are eternal. Yeah. When when we die. We're almost what he what he he considers the unity of say like a human individual, and he wouldn't use that word a human being. The unity of the human being is sort of the different relations between the different atoms. Aggregates of atoms, yeah. And when we die, the first atoms to leave the body and to break up this unity, because he conceives the unity of the human being as like an airtight seal. When we die, that airtight seal is ruptured and the lightest elements leave first and the lightest are the soul which is why we can't be there to experience death he says we can but die we cannot be dead which is again so the first little atoms to leave they're the lightest are the soul and they leave upon the disaggregation the breaking down of the unity of of the body yeah that's yeah. interesting in terms of the practicality of like a, a star whenever it off gases so the lighter elements are off gassed first so it starts the star starts to shed its lighter layers you know like helium and shit like that right is way lighter for instance than you know like i was using the example of lead etc but anyways that was just sort of to draw the fractal sort of nature of all this stuff or seemingly at least at least the appearance the uh, sense appearance if you will
yeah combined with some type of irrationalism right yes because the fact that we can't see the the atoms they are imperceptible it's not necessarily due to a failure of our senses it's the fact that our senses are not on the same scale if we were little tiny homunculi on the scale of atoms we'd be able to see them and this is what leads them to be sort of irrational we can perceive them sort of with the mind but not with the eye and then we can now we can perceive their effects but we can't actually see them or electron microscope is it i'd have to look this up actually now that i brought this well this is where the word atom is not so helpful because we know that the atom at least in modern science is divisible and it has smaller parts okay so they're impossible to view through a light microscope yes but not through an electron microscope right and so you know this is kind of why Leibniz is even if there are other difficulties with his theory this is why Leibniz is where monad is interesting and his conception of monads is better for science because it's monads all the way down. Right, yeah. You know, there's already this theoretical discussion of quarks having these kind of sub-quark elements. And so it is kind of monads all the way down. even if Right, fractal all the way down as well, yeah. right? Kind that of would be the same ontology. thing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. That's literally what it is if it's literal monads all the way down and up, which is also interesting, I guess, you know, getting into the actual like modern day physics, right? Because as I was kind of rehearsing in the pregame that, you know, I've heard this example given that an atom, let's say if you scale it up to the size of like a a football stadium, let's say a large high school football stadium, the nucleus of the atom would be like a pinhead on the 50 yard line. And the sort of parking lot of the stadium would be like the orbital limit of the atom itself. So that's a tremendous amount of empty space within the constitutive element of all matter itself, which I guess is probably why some people want to, you know, problematize matter itself, the existence of matter, like Graham Harmon mentioned. I don't know in your reading of Harmon's work, did you encounter any of that stuff? Because he just barely touched on that in the discussion we had. But I think that's there, a, that was there, a super there. interesting point to me. Yeah, there are strains in, in speculative realism about sort of a materiality without matter, et cetera, where matter is still this kind of idealist presupposition. And Harmon does go into that a little bit. And he's not alone. Laura Wells written on this. It's kind of an interesting avenue. I would say that this, again, your, your analogy, which I think it's really helpful to kind of conceptualize the atom in modern physics, having so much empty space being mostly empty space, if we consider it, right, that this is antithetical to the Epicurean conception of atoms. Atoms themselves in the Epicurean theory would not have empty space, right? In fact, Marx, as you've kind of highlighted here, has defined the atom is the immediate negation of abstract space, hence the spatial point. Yeah. So void would be external to atoms, Again, precisely because in Greek that atom means that which can not be cut, right? It can't be broken down yeah. further. So it would have no void. Right. That draws the distinction between like the atoms, the philosophical conceptual atoms that they're speaking of here versus the scientific, the atoms of modern physics are not the same thing, can even conceptually. 
And that's why Adam in our parlance is a misnomer, but names stick, right? I mean, that this is, they stick and for, for want of conceptual reconfiguration <laughs> and innovation, we're, we're going to, we're stuck with, the, we're stuck it's, with that. Yeah, it, it's, word. we're it stuck sounds, with the word. It sounds better than like corpuscle or whatever. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in a certain sense, the atoms of the sure. ancient Greek looks more like the corpuscle of sort of, of outdated theories, because I would assume corpuscles would be much more of full bodies. True. Full, right. Yeah. Full bodies without organs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, to, to misuse, to, to do another misuse. So that's kind of interesting to think about, you know, that, that we're sort of stuck with this terminology and, and no one really questions it. But I, I think that, you know, instead of saying like, oh, well, it's not true to the Epicurean theory, I think it would be like, what's good about the word Adam, as it's used, and there's an Amber Alert. Sorry about that. What's what's good about the the term Adam, even if it's it, it not true to the Greek, it still shows its inheritance from these Greek philosophies that we're discussing. Right. And so in that sense, it does a kind of homage. Yeah. And, and has a has a good intention, where even if it's etymologically incorrect, you know. Yeah, because it goes back to show the continuity between philosophy and and the physical and natural sciences having been mm -hmm. a unified discipline at one point, basically, that I mentioned yeah, earlier. This inheritance of the history of ideas and antiquity and yeah. having and it goes to the myth of, of the given, like right? It's like these. It's by mistake. It's by missing the true, the true, or whatever that we fail forward, right? Well, now you sound very Hegelian. I know it's I, dude. I'm I'm sorry. See, I it's I'm the, becoming I, more Hegelian as the the identity of difference and non-difference and blah blah blah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So, gosh, what's some other interesting things? Um, just to circle back to some some of the interesting things that Marx discusses in in describing the difference in like character between Democritus and Epictetus, which I think is interesting and may again shed some light because in a certain sense, Marx is trying to pull a kind of put these two thinkers in opposition, not just in terms of their physics, but even in terms of what we said in terms of their moral theories, which we talked about a little bit, but also in terms of their, their temperament. And we talked about how they both kind of faced death and Democritus is, and again, this could be apocryphal, this could be anecdotal, but it's supposed to have blinded himself because, as we kind of said, he, he as a man of science, grew wary, grew, grew almost obsess obsessively skeptical of the senses, right? Cicero even relates like Democritus sees the sun and knows that it's, it's of such great size because of its distance from us because he knows geometry, whereas Epicurus is fine to say that the sun, it appears two feet large, so it is two feet large, right? Because, again, our sense impressions are, are that which has to, to be our guide. And instead, you described this very eloquently, and I want you to kind of maybe reproduce it. How does Epicurus, when he's on the verge of death, what does he go and do? When he's ready to die, he takes a nice bath and like, I think he invites his friends over to talk. That's right. Or no, he tells his friends to continue enjoying like philosophy or something, basically. Right, because for Epictetus, is philosophy the, is the basis for happiness. It is the basis for living a healthy life. That's his kind of key yeah. central tenet. You know, it's not about this sort of unlimited thirst for knowledge. And this is why when he says like a philosophy that doesn't 
help us lead a healthier life. And he sounds very Nietzschean here too, because in many ways, the gay science is about a science of convalescence, about a science of perspectives in the continuum between illness and becoming healthier and sort of the perspective shift that we have back on health when we are ill and back on illness when we are health. And that is a kind of that overcoming, that self-overcoming too of illness, that overcoming of resistance is this feeling of power and therefore this feeling of joy. And there is a sense in which Epicurus is emblematic of this type of self-overcoming, but it's a self-overcoming by restricting our sphere of, of sort of unnecessary and harmful desires. And therefore, this is why philosophy, go on doing philosophy, which means go on you know, living with, within a certain confine where even little is not only enough, but feels like wealth and is healthy, right? It's ataraxia again, right? It's this free from disturbance. Yeah, it was kind of funny. I didn't mention this earlier, but we were talking about how I had taken that personality test and like relative to me being an Epicurean. I think it is kind of funny like that, I think one of the primary things in my life that gives me joy is to talk philosophy on the podcast with my friends. So, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, the two principal sources of wealth for Epicurus are wisdom and friendship. And, you know, I think that that's something we try to, since we're getting meta, you know, since we're getting, <laughs> we're getting, we're going to be meta today. Uh, that's two of the things that we do try to, you know, espouse well, and work through in the show. Union of egoists is kind of this thing too. Via Sterner, the union of egoists is like it's a group of friends, basically. The recognition of the joy of one another's like intercourse with one another, not sexual, but dialogue, but as intercourse, not discourse. Yeah. Which yeah. I think there's a distinction there. There's a connotation of openness. I think there's a, res a reciprocity of intercourse and egalitarianism that's not connoted by discourse right discourse is like typically i don't know it's like it can be despotic right or like it's hierarchical whereas intercourse is horizontal it's the rhizome but anyways i'll shut up thinking about this notion of epicurus and um again basically this this notion of a free will or indeterminism that he is fond of and he's basically trying to articulate the fact that you know we have we are able to sort of attain a, a kind of freedom through ataraxia through sort of freedom from uh, it's a freedom from mental disturbance and a freedom from confusion a freedom from fear a freedom from superstition and and that is i think important for him and that's why he defines philosophy in this way about about sort of uh you know a sort of becoming healthier because it is ridding of us of all these things that would bind us to a type of necessity right to yeah. uh, and to a type into these desires that uh that it's are sort of, natural and to go back to our our friend elliot it's like a rational what is it? Rational, uh, fuck self-interest, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
Yeah, rational self-interest. It's a type of it's a type of an example of a type of rational self-interest in Epicurus. Yeah, I mean, it, for him, it's a it's a self-interest, but it you know it, it's it's not. I don't know. I, I guess that's the the question would be where the line then would be drawn between it being unconscious desires and unconscious self-interest. I, you know, cause for a certain extent, True, right. you know, Epicurus is trying to tell us to become self-conscious. And in fact, Marx's interest in Epicurus and the dissertation is very much rooted in this privileging of sensuous reality that culminates in, in this sort of movement of self-consciousness and this becoming self-conscious of our sort of our freedom, right? And becoming self-conscious of our desires and their achievement and in a way that rids them of all of these externalities and all of these um, these things that we find necessary in our culture, right? And this demand to sort of to love and to be loved and, and all of this shit that we see way before capitalism. We see, you see it like in Augustine and, and in these, these other things specifically from like a personal God. And this is why I think it's interesting that Epicurus is like, look, no, the gods exist, but they live between worlds. They are perfectly, they are so perfect that they have no interest in anything else. And they don't act it kind of accords with Aristotle's notion of perfection, which is something that is an end in itself, has no need to act, right? And so the gods don't care about us. They're not going to punish us. There is this kind of Nietzschean, proto-Nietzscheanism in Epicurus when he kind of disputes the metaphysics of the hangman that would want to find a self that would be responsible and that would be the cause, the necessary cause for, for actions you know, he's, he's trying to get us to see that, you know, we don't have to be, we don't have to be miserable. We don't have to fear death that we don't. And that one of the, one of the main things beyond fearing death that keeps us from realizing joy in the everyday is a desire for immortality. And that that desire right. for immortality is creating a lack yeah, well, there, it would create a lack. And it would also, he kind of makes this interesting argument that even if we were to live immortally, this would not necessarily increase the sort of the sort of joy that we were able to feel, the sort of pleasure we would be able to feel in a limited time frame. That in fact, given infinite time, it, our joy would not necessarily increase. So, and this is what I was sort of, I think, trying to get you earlier in the pregame relative to like, uh, wait, say that again. Say what you were. That the that. amount of the, the amount of joy felt in a, in a limited life and, and even ah, okay. li- living, living within our, our, our means and, and, and living within the boundaries of sort of proper desire, living a healthy life, all of this, in fact, wouldn't be increased yeah so with it, immortality and see this is where I, what i was trying to say earlier i think is that our ephemeral our ephemeral nature or our ephemeral being or like time being eminent to being is what sets the or what gen, is constant constitutive of our ability to experience phenomenon i guess right because the gods don't experience phenomenon because they exist 
outside of time. They don't need to change because they're already perfect monads or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Epicurus makes it, he kind of says it a little bit differently, but but with a similar outcome where the, the gods are physical, but they're just so perfectly composed that it's as though they were, and they live between the worlds, right? They live in the intermundia. They don't participate in our worlds, but they have their own, they have their own joys, but they're, they're, they're perfectly uh, sort of self-contained like the atom. They're perfectly indifferent like the atoms to uh they are removed from these relations with the world that i think is like a kind of a theme that Larwell himself develops in his own way i'm not calling him epicurean about this interest in not being determined by the world not sort of being forced by it into these relations epicurus is warning us to be able to take on this freedom of sort of curtailing all these relations that modern society and ancient society obviously would uh, sort of get us embroiled in. And he's, he's kind of wanting us to, to see that the relations within which we enter are like the swerve, a product of sort of our inherent movement and that we can right. become conscious of that and that we can then disentangle ourselves and you know, this is why Epicureanism is not some sort of hedonistic philosophy of getting pleasure. It's actually really much about like you're intensifying the pleasure by removing all of these externalities that seem necessary, but but are in fact just these relations that are completely superfluous. Yeah, superfluous. Or, exactly. Right. Or not germane to like true our, happiness. Our true or our yeah, our lives. Yeah enjoyment i guess and this is why it's completely antithetical to like the stoic philosophy of there's this world cosmic order that we have to get in line we have to get attuned to and it's when we're out of tune that we are uh sort of trying to fight against fate and that's that leads to unhappiness that's that's complete it's completely (laughs) false a world given to us versus a world that's made by Mm -hmm. yeah by our actions by our and that's a fundamental kind of that's a fundamental that statement you just made, and you can repeat it. That's a fundamental Marxist articulation. The world having been made, yeah. That I mean, I had sort of understood that, but like now I think Antiedipus has really helped me kind of get a really good grasp on the way that history moves and like humanity and knowledge move throughout history, etc. I don't know, super interesting. In the passages we read last week with Gill, they make this point that moving from the despotic machine with its imminent overcoating unity of the despot, right? The sort of phallus removed from the chain as like the unique object to the body of the organs of capital with its differential relations and abstract flows conjoining together is like moving from Parmenides, the great thinker of the one, to Democritus right? The thinker of atomism. So capitalism is like the imminent field of the atoms, of the flows of the, of the quanta, of the sort of the quantitative abstract flows, just like the the abstract atoms. Nice. It's kind of an offhand statement they make, um, but I've been mulling it over in my head, thinking through, even though it's not Parmenides versus Democritus in this (laughs) dissertation, it's still interesting to think about the body of the despot to the body of of abstract decoded deterritorialized 
differential flows. So that becomes the interesting thing then too, since we're on anti-Oedipus is that, you know, the Democritian body without organs of capital and capital blows streams of, of atoms, you know, there's, there's something there that I would have to work out where, you know, Epicurus would be an anathema to, to the body without capital, right? As you know, in their demeanor, in their, in the introduction of the swerve, because the swerve wouldn't be inherent to the, to the flows. And therefore, you know, the flows are completely determined by the differential relations in which they enter into. They're stripped of all quality, like the concept of the atom is supposed to be abstract individuality, but the flows are endowed with qualities after being determined, right? DX and DY by themselves are nothing, but they they do take on qualities after entering, entering into a relationship. And I think that that's maybe somewhat what Marx is trying to talk about with the concept of the atom as abstract individuality. The notion of atoms having qualities is completely foreign to them. And yet it's a necessary implication that they do have qualities. In a certain sense, he's thinking of the differential relation that Deleuze and Guattari sort of analyze in um, in the body of capital and decoded flows. Maybe that's a better way of conceiving my idea about how death kind of death and being sort of are in a kind of are they in a differential type of a relation? Death and being, yeah, in a differential relationship. I like, mean, just in terms of the way that I don't know, I was just thinking, like I said, like death seems like the hard limit to being right. Like its external limit is death. It's but, but, that, but without that, without that limit, then it is God because it lives forever and doesn't change. It doesn't have any sensual perception. Right. Like, you know what I mean? But as we said, atoms don't don't know death. Right. Neither does the unconscious. So. So if atoms are standing in for abstract being, then I'm not sure if death was well, the there an unconscious. Being. Well, what about in the context of Eros? So increasing complexity, right, as a drive for preservation of this body, like the body without organs type, like the superorganism, right? It would seem that time as concrete nature as real as the real form of nature insofar as marx describes it in one of the last chapters the penultimate chapter of the book time would be the sort of cooperation of thanatos and eros as you're describing if we're thinking in terms of freudian death drive right that the atoms themselves enter through their imminent swerve enter into relationships that die they are meant to die um, through an eminent principle, even if their death comes from without, it, it sort of arises from within, as Stills and Guattari are always talking about with the primitive territorial machine and the despotic machine, you know, because to a certain extent, their dissolution is both internal and compositions, not atoms, but the, the compositions, composites, they sort of start to lose their internal cohesive force, right, which Epicurus can he'll try to talk about them in terms of the shape of the atoms like slipping and so all, all this stuff which becomes very kind of you know pseudoscientific right yeah. today but they also the death comes from without because it is 
a force greater than the internal cohesive force keeping the atoms together in a composition it comes to attack their unity right and that's what breaks them down so it is a kind of imminent death even if it comes from without it sort of arises its principle arises from within and that's kind of how Freud thinks the death drive in terms of organisms at least right so we can we can apply this to epicurean composites i think that there could be some kind of analogy there nice okay so i'm not as full of shit as i thought <laughs> The response to death that we talked about relative to Democritus and Epicurus. Well, their own deaths. Yeah, right. Their literal approach to the way that they respond to this hard limit of death. It almost feels like Epicurus's drive is to the acquisition of knowledge to conquer death is sort of the which kind of maps onto, I think, the drive of science in our modern discourse. In a sense, this even goes back to symbolic exchange and death as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think there's this line that uh, Epicurus has where he says, we are born only once and we cannot be born twice. And one must for all eternity exist no more. You are not in control of tomorrow and yet you delay your opportunity to rejoice. Life is ruined by delay and each and every one of us dies without enjoying leisure. So... That's, I mean, if you um, think about the hangman, or not the hangman, the, the bondsman and the slave, I think that kind of has some cachet. Struggle to the death. The Lord is, is willing to wager his own death. And you're in sort of bad faith relative to your own enjoyment. Right. I mean, that's kind of, and this is why, again, Epicurus sounds like a proto-Nietzsche when he's saying shit like this, because it sounds very much like the eternal return and Nietzsche's kind of ethical demand that, you know, when we are told we will live the same life an infinite number of times, do we, do we despair, do we rejoice? And what the demand is saying is like, and this is Epicurus too, because he's thinking about these moments of pleasure and joy. It's it's conceive of that moment that would make you rejoice in living it over and over and willing it forever. Mm -hmm. And in willing that moment, you have to will everything that came before. That's just a necessary consequence. Then go out and, you know, fucking carpe diem and all that shit. Make that moment crystallize make your life something to which you will not despair and, and, you know, having to redo it over and over, you know, sort of exult. Easier said than done. But that again is kind of this mantra of, of Epicurus and Nietzsche in his own way with the gay science, conceiving philosophy as this discourse on sort of becoming healthy and therefore becoming able to find joy if you see anything on this list or whatever that piques your interest just let me know because i'm just kind of i think we kind of talked about some of this already yeah time is what does it say excluded from the concept of the atom right the atom is eternal it's the atoms in in their swerves and their and their re and the rebounding the sort of incidents that forms composites that then can enter into becoming. And then that's when we can see time as concrete. Yeah. I mean, that's, we've, we've talked about that, but that it bears repeating. It makes sense. 
I thought this was quite interesting, though. Time itself offers proof that not everything need have an origin, a moment, a beginning. This, again, is is this notion that the atoms are, are eternal. They're infinite, just like the void is eternal and infinite. They don't have a genesis per se, which would give a different meaning to your creative nothing. Talk about that a little bit. Because we are not given, because they are presupposed as the principle out of which all genesis and creation occurs, they are not themselves treated as being created. It would be an infinite regress. This is kind of the same way with um, with God, substance, and Spinoza as self-cause, right? It's not alienated in its cause, it's imminent in the cause of itself. It's kind of an ex nihilo, as out of a nothing. It's the Why, same with the atom. Does it have anything to do with the quasi-cause stuff, or am I just... I don't think so, because the quasi-cause would be back to this sort of evolution of the connections of production and, and recording and all these other things. It would kind of get us more into human society. The atoms themselves are, are not created or destroyed. Matter cannot be created or destroyed. That's still kind of one of our, right? The compositions into which matter can configure itself and become configured. Sure. That's when we start, when we can start to think about becoming in death and individuation. See, it's so interesting to me that there's like all these things seem divided against themselves in the kind of Hegelian fashion. Within the seed of life is death. It becomes the thing where life and death are only seemingly opposites, though, right? Life does not imply. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily. Life does not, life does not mean deathlessness, right? It's. You know, Simon Don finds a kind of beyond the pleasure principle, a kind of death drive within life himself. He calls it amortization, which kind of says like, <laughs> insofar as individuals individuate, they sort of, they are always necessarily installed within those individuations, little like packets of, of death, death on the installment plan, right? But in a different sense, right? It's, it's like this kind of cancerous thing. It's just a... And we can look at this from like the standpoint of embryology, like the Liz and Guattari would do and all of these things that the embryo can undergo these individuations that rip apart the adult biological being that it becomes, you know, as we age, we are able to restructure our individuations less and less. And I think that for Simon Don, this is why he comes to the conclusion that the sort of desire for immortality, kind of like with Epicurus, this desire to be an absolute being is inherently unethical. And Lucretius talks about life as being run by runners in a relay race that are handing off this torch down the line. Atoms in their incidence and composition are like just the little seeds that are able to imbue these runners with the fire that lights their torch and they're handing it off down the generations it's interesting to think of epicurus as this quasi like a pre-empiricism almost mm -hmm. relative to like uh the scottish philosopher why am i blanking hume yeah hume i was a big fan of hume in my uh intro to philosophy class by the way
Well, in a certain sense, uh, Hume's like theory of the bundles of, of perceptions, you know, that, that kind of coincides his, his attack on determinism is very similar to yeah, Epicurus. That make, yeah, that makes sense. You know, his, his kind of, his argument that miracles are merely that for which we do not yet have scientific explanations, but can eventually be explained with enough advancement in science or understanding. That kind of accords with Epicurus saying the gods don't intervene in our world, right? Because one of Epicurus's principles is Insofar as we're interested in natural science, we want to be able to describe what is of popular opinion as super sensual, as being supernatural, as natural. So, yeah, I, I do think that there are a lot of resonances with, with Hume. I didn't have anything else relative to this. I'm looking forward to see how Nail kind of progresses his thesis relative to Marx in motion and what he draws from the dissertation. So. Hopefully this provides some nice color and background to that, but that's really yeah, I all think, I had today. No, I think that's great. I think it's it's good. We we were able to, to sort of use Marx as a jumping off point and, um, and talk also a little bit about sort of the context within which Epicurus is thinking and, and why he's interested in, in these questions, what he's reacting to. So I thought it was really good. Yeah, I had fun. I suppose that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. Bye, y'all. Of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thank you.